1931, Albert Einstein got the opportunity to meet one of the biggest names in the silent film era during the premiere of the film City Lights in Los Angeles. Einstein, who was still a German citizen at the time, was traveling the United States, and the physicist who was at the height of his fame, having been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize a decade prior, was introduced to the film icon, Charlie Chaplin. And the two met at Universal Studios away from the paparazzi, and the pair took a tour and had lunch together, hitting it off straight away. Sharing quit wits and curious minds with Chaplin later inviting Einstein to the premiere of his latest motion picture. Well, as the story goes at the premiere and seeing the masses wildly cheering for them, Einstein remarked to Chaplin, What I admire most about your art is its universality. You don't say a word, yet the world understands you. Chaplin replied, true, but your glory is even greater. The whole world admires you even though they don't understand a word of what you say. <laughs> you don't say a word, yet the world understands you. I'm aware that Einstein made a lot of insightful observations in his life, but I was telling the senior high campers last week that perhaps we as the people of God ought to consider this observation a bit more carefully you don't say a word, yet the world understands you. That without saying anything, that based purely off of our actions, our choreography, as I, you could say, our decisions and choices, more than our words, the world is capable of understanding the message or the story or the good news that you and I want to preach. Last week, I had the privilege to serve as a camp pastor at Camp Moses Merrill alongside my friend and colleague, Pastor Joy Martinez Marshall. And we talked specifically to the students about how our actions as Christians, more than often than not, is more than our words, often our actions speak louder than our words. That the world is paying attention to what it looks like to be a Christian long before they ever consider the message that Christians want to say. That they see the actions of Christians before they ever hear this message. Or to maybe put it a little more frankly, the world actually knows a lot about Jesus and they're looking to see how our knowledge of Jesus translates into our lives. I'm a firm believer that the first thing noticeable about Christians is often what they do, not what they say. And if I were to be so bold, in my humble opinion, what Christians want to say often gets stifled or it gets muddied or it gets ignored because their message and their actions or the actions of other professing Christians doesn't always add up making it difficult for the gospel to be communicated and received. And so throughout the week, Joy and I endeavored to challenge the students to move simply past knowing the story about Jesus, but to consider how we can embody the story, how we can examine the story of Jesus as recorded in the gospels, looking to see how we can act and sound like Jesus, to do what Jesus did, to consider ways we can embody and incarnate who Jesus was in our own lives. And so we did this in a variety of ways, and that we looked at a variety of 
verbs that characterize Jesus' earthly ministry. We looked at how Jesus discipled and how he slept and rested and went and flipped tables and even wept. And admittedly, some of the verbs of Jesus we can't do, but by and large, a lot of what Jesus did we can and I think ought to do, and I think that's what discipleship is. If it's true, if you truly want to be Christians, if we truly want to be literally little Christs, which is what Christians mean, we ought to be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, and we need to do what our Lord did to model being Jesus, to mimic him in all that we do, to do what Jesus did. And as I was reflecting on last week, preaching these different sermons about verbs, I was captivated by one verb that I believe Jesus did that captured the imagination and the attention of the Apostle John this morning. A verb that John believed wasn't simply just a verb, but that it was also a noun because he was able to see it with his own eyes and touch it with his own hands. It's a verb that John believes is the essence of God himself, a verb that John, the so-called believer that is the disciple whom Jesus loved, that he was so enamored by this verb that he can't stop talking about this verb. And that verb, my friends, is love. No less than three times in this little sermon we call as 1 John, does John appear to deviate from his current train of thought to elaborate on the significance of love. It almost sounds like John is on repeat at times, almost as if he's a broken record, that he just gets on this soapbox and just won't stop talking. And if you've ever read 1 John, you may get to a point where you could wish you could just tell John, I heard you the first time, buddy. We get it. But I think if John were here this morning, I think he'd say, you don't get it. Because if you did, I wouldn't have to repeat myself. Because John says, God is love. And for John, this is the basic premise of all Christian faith and theology. For God is love is one of, if not the most defining characteristics of God. Brendan Manning says it this way, God has a single relentless stance towards us. He loves us. He's the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. Because false gods are the gods of human manufacturing. They despise sinners, but the Father of Jesus loves all no matter what they do. God is love undergirds everything for John. It's the foundation. It's the bedrock on which everything else is built upon. And to miss this about God means that you'll miss the entirety of who God is and his relationship with us. Because according to John, one can only know God through love. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. And when John says to know, it's not like, like to know like an intellectual ascent. It's not like growing in, in your knowledge of math in school. To know God means to grow in your relationship with him. It would be like with anybody else in your life, if you get to know a person, you grow to know who they are, their hobbies and their habits and their interests and their pleasures, their likes and dislikes. John says the same thing happens with God whenever we're characterized by the primary thing that characterizes God. And for John, that's love so to love is to be in companionship and friendship with God it is to be with God as God is with us but what do we mean by love 
Love so happens to be one of these words that just gets thrown around in the church a lot. And we often speak about love and talk about love, but we rarely ever explain or define what we mean by love. And, and I know I've given you my definition of love before, but I, we have some guests here this morning. And so for those of you that know my definition of love, do not spoil it for the rest of everyone here. But in college, I had a theology professor by the name of Dr. Chris Bounds, and he had this definition of love that he believed, and I believe rightfully so, is biblically and theologically sound. And he'd tell us in class, and it goes a little bit like this. He would say that love is composed of two parts, and the first part is desire. Love is the desire for union with someone or something. If you love someone, you desire something, you desire some degree of relationship or fellowship with whatever that is. So love is the desire for, for oneness with someone or something. But the other part about love, it's not just desire alone. Love is also the alignment of our will with that desire. Love is about making decisions and choices that actually bring about the union with someone or something that we desire to be in union with. So it's not just desire alone, it's not just will alone, but rather in summary, love is the alignment of the will with the desire for union with someone or something. The desire and will coming together to bring about union, and I really regret I was going to bring the board and write it on the board I didn't bring the board this morning. I'm still recovering from camp. <laughs> now, for those of you that have heard my definition of love before, I always try to illustrate it. And for those of you that know my illustrations, do not spoil my illustrations. We have guests in the room, but I think it's really good to repeat it. So most of you know, I love barbecue. I grew up in Kansas City, the barbecue capital of the world. I will not hear any other arguments. And it should come as no surprise that barbecue is my favorite food group. I love beef and pork and chicken. It doesn't matter. Just give me some ribs or some brisket. My mouth is already watering just thinking about it. And yes, I know lunchtime is coming. Just sit here for a second. But I love barbecue. And my desire to be united with a plate of nice Kansas City-style barbecue. But it's not true love until I make decisions and choices that actually unite me with the barbecue. So whether it be ordering at a restaurant or cooking some barbecue at home, or I make my pilgrimage to the best barbecue joints in the world, only found in Kansas City whenever I visit my parents. And relax, I manage to talk with my parents over the plate of barbecue, so don't worry about that. But it's not true love until my will is in alignment with my desire for barbecue. As most of you know, I love the reigning Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm beginning to realize none of you remember anything from my sermons except for my love for the Kansas City Chiefs. And barbecue. And Dave Johnson, wherever you're listening this morning, as your pastor, as we talk every week, I just want to remind you, Dave, that we're 46 days away until the Detroit Lions, who have never won a Super Bowl in their life, have to stand there as we raise another banner for another Super Bowl at Arrowhead Stadium. We are 46 days away. Not that I'm counting. But my love for the Kansas City Chiefs is not true unless I make decisions and choices that 
make my desire to be one with that football franchise a reality. Until my desire is aligned with my will, it is not true love. And true love does not settle for anything less than union or oneness. So it's on my bucket list to watch Patrick Mahomes play in person one time in my life. That I'll purchase a ticket and that I'll go to the stadium and be there in oneness with the franchise. But in the meantime, I will always watch every single play and game that I can. And if I can't, I may be secretly looking at my phone at the score. You know I've purchased clothing and other paraphernalia to show my love for that team because my desire and will are in alignment, meaning it's true love. And before you get on to me, I know all the big red stuff that you guys own. <laughs> Plank in your own eye kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? All right, let's get serious. I love my parents and my brother and his new sister, my new sister-in-law. I desire to be in relationship with my family, my parents, my brother, and his wife. To the best that I can be, I want to be in relationship with them, right? You want to be in relationship with your loved one too. But my love for them is only just a noble thought. It's only a good intention and nothing more. It's not true love unless I were to act on that desire by making decisions and choices that actualize my desire for union with them. Perhaps actions like this, where I will FaceTime my mother every week when I can. Yes, I know I'm a great son. You can, thank you, thank you. No comment there, that's okay. I traveled to visit them on occasion, including being a part of my brother's wedding last month, and I don't know if there's any sign of true love than having to be in a wedding that's an outdoor wedding. You can laugh at that one. Can I get an amen from anybody? During certain parts of the year, I will buy them gifts. I want to be part of their lives. You get the idea. This is what true love is. If I love my parents and my brother and his wife, it's not true love until my desire and my will and my intentions are completely in unison with the goal. And so I had to make decisions and choices. And to reiterate, true love does not settle for half-hearted oneness or, unis or oneness or unison. Only complete union with someone or something does true love exist. And so for those that are keeping score, I believe John agrees with this definition and explanation of love. That again is the alignment of the will with the desire for union where someone or something, you hear it not only in John's gospel, but you hear it here. Because if you're familiar with John's gospel, I know you all know, for God so loved the world. You hear it echoed in this little sermon. God showed how much he loved us. John says, God loved humanity, and God wants to be in relationship and fellowship with all of humanity, but something got in the way, and it prevents this union, and we call it sin. Sin created this separation between us and God. Sin disrupted and ruptured our relationship with God, but the good news this morning is that did not stop God's love from finding a way, from aligning his will with his desire for union in humanity. Sin did not win. God's love won. But John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
John says essentially the same thing here in this little sermon. For God showed how much he loves us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. God, John's saying that God took action to overcome sin by sending his son. God aligned his will with his desire for union with us, meaning it's true Love, And this is how John knows this, because it was true love, because it was love incarnate, John says, that the Word became flesh. He did not simply want or desire to be in relationship with. The Word made a decision. It wasn't just a daydream. It wasn't just pondering. But the Word made a decision to be made flesh in the image and likeness like we are. He made this decision to be sent by the Father and Holy Spirit He made the decision to come, and he made even a series of decisions, in fact. He made a choice over and over again, all culminating in the death on even a cross, all for the sake of becoming Emmanuel. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, will say it this way, that the Son of God chose to leave glory, to empty himself, to be born in the form of a servant, to be born in the likeness of humankind, and ultimately to suffer and die, even a death on the cross, all for love's sake. This is Jesus, the Son of God, aligning his will with the union with us friends it's not because we loved God though in fact we didn't love God we did not even make decisions and choices to want to be in unison with God because sin didn't have inhibited our desire to do that but for the love of God was foreign to us but not from God himself because John says not that we loved God but that he loved us and has sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins God took the initiative to love us first and praise be to God for that God's love isn't given in response to our seeking a relationship with him rather God made the first move and he's revealing his love through his son Most religions are built on this presupposition that we have to make sacrifices to a God first and then we might receive blessings. But according to John, that's not how our God works. He made the first move. He gave to the world and he sent his son to save us. That's true love. And this is why the rest of the New Testament, and John especially, and the life and person of Jesus Christ was the demonstration in the fullest expression of true love, of God's love, of the essence of who God is. We know what real love is, John says, because Jesus gave us his life for us. It's why scholar Rodney Reeves points out, for John, love isn't a thing. Love is a person. It's a person that John could touch with his own hands, see with his own eyes, hear with his own ears, and now he bears witness to us, friends. Jesus was the special revelation of the links God would go to out of love for you and for me. And since no one has seen God, John says, we rely on the visible demonstrations of an invisible God to know him. And unlike creation, where we can look out into the world and into the pretty world we live in and know that we have a creator or that we have the Holy Scriptures and we can hear the very word of God preached to us, but when it comes to the incarnate Son of God, the word made flesh, we get a special unveiling of who God is and how God operates and the extents of his love. Creation and scripture are just things. Creation may come from God, but we know creation isn't God. And the scriptures may be inspired and breathed by God, but the words of God is not the word, capital W, God. But when it comes to love, God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the apostle Paul says. 
That's what sets the love of God apart from everything else in John's mind. Love isn't a thing, it's a person. You're about as quiet as all the campers were last week. They kept coming up to me and saying, you're really passionate when you preach. I don't know what I make, will make of that. Passionate. All right. But the thing I believe John wants us to take away is not only that love is a person, and it's made it possible for us to be in relationship with him. I think we know that. But John wants us to know that this same person is beckoning us to extend true love, just as he did, to others. To be people of love just as he is a person of love. I think John would be saddened to learn that many of us know by heart John 3.16 and not 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 says we know what real love is because Jesus gave his life for us. Catch this last part. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's funny that we forget that last part. There's a sense of reciprocity when it comes to God's love. We love each other because he loved us, John says, and this should not come as a surprise to those to John is writing and even us to us this morning. It's how it's always been. John says, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, this is an old one you've heard from the beginning, but I don't want you to hear commandment and instantly think of rules. We tend to do that when we hear this word, but instead I'm thinking, wanting you to think of loving like God loved, as John does. Because John sees it as a means of grace. He sees it as an invitation. An invitation, John says, to experience the very presence of God. John says, if we love each other, God lives in us. A better rendering of the original Greek is that God abides with us. It's one of John's favorite words. In the original Greek, it refers to both a place and an attitude. It's to stay at home, but it's also to be at home. To abide with someone means you're staying with them or you're taking up residence with them, that you're moving into their house. But to abide with someone can also mean that you're remaining with them, that you're finding a home with them, that you persist, that you keep going, that you remain, that you last. Friends, I think when we love one another, John says God's presence will be made manifest to us in a unique way. That through the work of his Holy Spirit, we can know him more by loving other people. We can go deeper in our relationship with him when we love other people. God is nearest to those that love others. He's closer than any of the other points in our lives. It's one of the main conduits and means of grace to be in close proximity to God's very presence. And this makes sense when we remember again that God is love. When you align your will to be in union with someone else, whether that be a loved one, whether it be a brother and sister in this room, or Jesus would say, your neighbor as yourself, or Jesus would even go as far to say, with your enemies, when you make decisions and choices that realize that union to whatever degree it is, you are rediscovering what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. We were made for love. We are made for true love with God and one another. And when we tap into true love right now, we're remembering who we were and also who we are in the eyes of God, just like we were before we fell. An honored child, a beloved, and God abides and makes his presence known to us as a foretaste of how we'll experience a relationship with God one day in glory. But this only comes, John says, 
when we love other people. And ironically, the same presence that we sense with God when we love other people, those outside of us will notice it as well, John says. Because just as Jesus came into this world so that the world might know the love of God in him, just as Jesus is the incarnation of God, the very presence of God's love, John says he believes that in Christ, the embodiment of true love now exists in us. That when the world sees us love one another, the world sees Jesus. Because just as Christ is the visible presence in the world of the invisible God, so also we, when we love one another. Because God is in us, evident in the way that we love others, we are the visible presence of an invisible God, John says. Isn't that incredible? So for John, people won't be convinced of the existence of God by a Bible tract that we hand out or knowing the most scientific and intellectual proofs for the existence of God or having the best convincing argument. Not that those are bad things, but I don't think I don't want us to miss what I think John is saying, that people will be convinced and they will know about God as we have when we demonstrate and embody and incarnate the love of God to each of them. That's the greatest evangelism tool, John says. John's apologetics, his defense of the face, is unapologetically loving each other. John's tactics to convince people of the gospel is just love, plain and simple. Love is that important to John. And I firmly believe that without saying a word, by simply loving people, the world will understand our message just like Einstein observed. You don't say a word, yet the world understands you. And perhaps that's through the mystery of love. N.T. Wright says, Love incarnate must be the badge that the Christian community wears, the sign not only of who we are, but who of who their God is. But this is easy to write, and it's hard to achieve. It's not an optional extra. It is the very essence of what we are about. And he says, and if this means we need some new reformations, so be it. To love like God loves means we not simply agree with this noble intention, It's not enough to agree with the sentiment, but we actually have to make decisions and choices, friends, often sacrificial and selfless in nature, to make our wants a reality. If we want to be true people of love, we have to be active and we have to get moving. We have to do things in the name of love that Jesus was willing to do. So how about us? I think this is the crossroads that the church finds herself in today. In a time of immense division and strife, perhaps the church ought to return to the basics of what it means to be the church, to love like God loved, to imitate his loving ways. God has set the example, and we are called to copy it. And when it comes to our neighbors and even our enemies and those difficult people in our lives, we ought to love the same way that God has shown us, that is the alignment of the will with the desire for union and fellowship. And perhaps John's message hits closer to home, and perhaps it starts right here in this church family, friends. John says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can can we love God whom we cannot see? Essentially, he's saying, how can someone claim to love the invisible God whom we can't see when they hate his or her brother or sister whom everyone can see? So according to John, the only way to love the invisible God is to love the visible believer. Beth Moore says, if God is love, then nothing is more blasphemous than hate. When the world sees how its church loves its own, I believe it will see the invisible God. 
And perhaps we as the Gibbon Baptist Church, this city on a hill, not only in this town, but in central Nebraska, maybe we need to return back to the basics of loving each other, the people who make up this church family with the same love God demonstrated for us. If we truly believe we want to be in unison and in fellowship and a family together, we have to align our decisions and choices with that true desire, friends. Individually and collectively, we have to be willing to make decisions and choices, often tough decisions and choices, to make this unison happen. While we may desire and have this intention to be one with one another, while we may happily agree that we love to be a church family in conversation or in theory, are we individually and collectively making decisions and choices that will result in that desire? The thought, it's the thought that counts is not good enough for true love. If we say we love this church family here at Gibbon Baptist Church, are we making decisions and choices that make that desire a reality because the world is watching, friends? Do we make it a priority to gather with each other whenever that is possible in fellowship and in union to edify one another by our presence and our conversation and actions that our physical presence together is a ministry in and of itself? It's a choice to be a family because it doesn't happen by accident or chance. Are we pouring into one another in true love? Are we making decisions and choices regarding our talents and abilities, our resources and finances, our time and energy to make this church family, this oneness, this desire to be a family, whatever and whenever that looks like fully realized. For those that are already doing it, know that is true love. Or maybe right now the decision for you would become a full-fledged member of this church family. That you want to show your love for this church family by saying, I want to pledge myself for her well-being. And by becoming a member, you are making that conscious decision that I will love this church family because I want to see it more fully realized. And I want to help make decisions and choices for the betterment of the entire group by going in a deeper level with my love for this church family. If that interests you about membership, please Come and talk to me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. As we close, in 1984, singer Teen Turner famously posed the question, what's love got to do with it? And I hear John say this morning, everything. Because at the very heart of God is love, and at the center of the eternal relationships that exist between Father and Son and Holy Spirit is love. And at the very heart of the body of Christ, the church ought to be love. And we love God with our entire being. We're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ like Jesus loves. And we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Bob Goff says, loving each other is what we were meant to do and how we were meant to roll. It's not where we start when we begin following Jesus, but it's the beautiful path we travel the rest of our lives. Will it be messy and ambiguous and uncomfortable when we love people the way Jesus said to love them? You bet it will. Will we, will we be misunderstood and constantly? But extravagant love often means coloring outside the lines and going beyond the norms. Loving the neighbor we don't understand takes work and humility and patience and guts. It means leaving the security of our easy relationships to engage in more tumultuous, awkward ones. But we find a way to love difficult people more, and you'll be living the life Jesus talked about.